Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe we're already in the middle of the week. It seems like time goes by pretty quick. Just when Monday rolls around, we think it's going to be a long week. But by the time Wednesday's here, we already know we've made it to the halfway point. It feels good to be right at that half point, halfway point. What I also know that feels good is knowing that um, I'll be uh, sharing with you all another uh, podcast segment to um, Tales from a Revolution. Bacon's Rebellion, or let alone, I should say, Nathaniel Bacon's Rebellion. I know I probably shouldn't be giving anything away, but is it fair to say that we are learning the works of a soon-to-be rebellion? I would say so. Rebellions don't happen overnight, or I should say rebellious. Rebellious activity evolves over time, but the final sparks behind a mission are the real works of art. Because rebellious activity, no matter how big or small it may be, all it takes is that one final uh, fuse. Being a fuse that's so bad to where once the end results come or uh, emerge, there's no, uh, more than likely, there's no going back. So many of you all are wondering, okay, where are we going to go in this uh, podcast segment to Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America by James D. Rice? Well, in this uh, episode, we're going to be learning um, a great deal about the Susquehannock's um, struggle for safety. We're also going to be learning about um, Governor William Berkeley and what he has in store for him and how he can um, go about assuring that the um, greater commonwealth uh, will be uh, protected uh, in the midst of um, not so much uh, Indians attacking uh, Jamestown, but really more so from a, a plot from within. In other words, we're going to um, really learn about um, the, with regards to Governor Berkeley, we're going to be learning about the obstacles he has before him because it's it's just one of those things where we often take for granted that uh, oftentimes when leaders make decisions that everybody's going to go along with it. Sometimes people do, and other times they don't, uh, for better or for worse. And just when we think we have a united front, outside of uh, closed doors, people will end up doing the opposite. So we're going to be learning, uh, perhaps perhaps it would be fair to say that we're going to be learning about uh, how people do come to agreement on what should be done, but yet once they leave um, closed doorways, they um, either change their minds or they simply don't know how to stay uh, truly unified. Of course, one would say, well, if you agree to something inside uh, closed doors, why would you change your mind outside? Well, if you disagreed inside closed doors, uh, you would have to answer for it. And who's to say that you might leave those closed doors on good terms with the rest of your um, fellow uh, colleagues? Well, Let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go because we have a lot of ground to talk to talk about, but it will certainly be well worth the while. Our first leadoff question 
to Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Early Transformation and the Transformation of Early America for this podcast segment is the following. Despite coming away victorious during the siege along the Piscataway Creek, being right across from the uh, Potomac River, uh, were the Susquehannocks totally immune from all other dangers? Okay, you know, we learned from the previous podcast that the Susquehannocks uh, managed to hold their ground and they were able to um, sneak out during the middle of the night while English um, militiamen are asleep and a handful of them were viciously assaulted to where they had no means of being able to um, launch a counter-assault attack against the Susquehannocks. So yes, the Susquehannocks made it out. But many of us are wondering, okay, where exactly will the Susquehannocks go next, and will they be immune from any uh, other would-be lurking dangers? Well, the answer is no. The Susquehannocks will not be immune from all other dangers. For starters, the Susqu- for starters, rather, I should say, Susquehannock warriors had to oversee the safety of roughly 400 women and children. Okay, imagine being a handful of Susquehannock warriors, being men, and they are having to oversee the safety of of everyone else below them, most notably the women and children. So, okay, if you're in, if you have to oversee um, 400 women and children, not just one person, but a select group of men, this is no easy chore. Yes, you've made it out of harm's way on one end. But you can't just say to everyone else around you, okay, it's time to go split up, let's go our own ways for for a while and with the hopes that we can all reconnect. No, it, it's not going to work that way. So here they are having to oversee the safety of roughly 400 women and children while en route to seeking shelter. And what I mean by seeking shelter is basically finding the most secure uh, place or places where they will not be... Um, taken by surprise uh, by English settlers, or in worst case scenario, perhaps people of their own flesh and blood, meaning other Indian tribes. Secondly, uh, their escape route required walking upriver, where they did cross the Potomac, but did so without being caught off guard by English settlers residing nearby. You know, it's one thing to cross um, a river, but if you know that your um, that your uh, tribe's state of well-being, or let alone a group of people, if if you all know that your lives might be at stake, you've got to make sure you go somewhere where you know you can cross a part of a river, but doing so without being caught. Because it's one thing to cross a river, but if you end up being caught on the op- on the um, opposite side. Just when you think you've made it to safety, only to be uh, caught off guard via a raid, in this case by the English, then your mission did not end as planned. Uh, third, Susquehannocks were forced to maneuver around the Rappahannock, York, and James River tributaries. In other words, tributaries being like streams, creeks smaller bodies of water that feed into these rivers. 
So think about it, folks. We're not just talking about one river being the Potomac. The Susquehannocks are having to navigate their way through multiple uh, rivers, most notably their tribut the tributary uh, sections, where fortunately enough they escaped English and Indians, most notably Indians whom were trading partners and allies to the English. So we have to remember that um, while, yes, Indians and English peoples, while they may not see everything eye to eye, there is a flip side to it where English peoples and Indians do have certain things in common when it comes to trade. And once trading relations are, in, are established, what does that lead to? Alliances. And even alliances themselves during this time are not a 100% guarantee. It wouldn't take much for an alliance to be broken. The last thing that any Indian uh, tribe whom has already established an alliance with the English, the last thing they probably would want to come into counter with are the Susquehannocks. The Susquehannocks could persuade some of these Indian tribes to sever their alliances with the English, perhaps even go into English villages and murder families left and right. It sounds barbaric, but it did happen. And, is, and isn't it fair to say that we've already learned what took place in 1622 and in 1644 Indian uprisings in Virginia, two of the most notorious uprisings that almost eliminated the, uh, the presence of uh, Europeans in Virginia once and for all. The Susquehannocks, in the end, found safety within the Piedmont region. Now, the fall line is that, is that boundary um, line that separates the coastal plain from the, from the Piedmont. Whenever I think of the Piedmont, I think of a region that, is, that comprises of many uh, rolling hills like Southside Virginia, which is uh, right along the Virginia-North Carolina line, um, places like, um, you know, South Hill, South Boston, Danville, uh, Gretna, um, Halifax, uh, Clarksville, uh, just to name a few. But uh, the Piedmont region uh, goes uh, north of Southside Virginia into such places like, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia, which is... Uh, which is right in the heart of um, not just Blue Ridge country, but uh, the Piedmont region. So, you know, whenever you think of Piedmont, think of like in Virginia, think of uh, Southside uh, being south of uh, Richmond, but along the Virginia-North Carolina line. And it's fair to say that um, the Piedmont would have consisted of where the Okanichis resided, uh, given that their uh, territory was along the Virginia-North Carolina line. So basically, the Piedmont is also where the lower reaches of rivers give way to rapids. Uh, the Piedmont itself was home to many small streams, including an abundance of oak, poplar, and hickory trees. Now, come December of 1675, the Susquehannocks established multiple winter encampments um, within the Piedmont region. It's smart to um, have multiple encampments. If you put everybody in one encampment, depending on no matter how big or small the numbers are, but if you put everybody in one encampment, 
would that um, increase your chances of being caught off guard by English settlers who could launch an attack into the confines of your encampment? I would say yes, indeed. It would be bad enough if, say, the English um, launched an attack on one of the encampments, but at the same time, if the other encampments weren't too terribly close by, then uh, those Indian Indian peoples would be able to find means of regrouping and being able to perhaps launch a counter-assault attack back. So by not having everyone in one encampment, that automatically mean that meant that if uh, some of your peoples were hurt, you had enough backup from different areas, but not too far away to where um, help uh, help could be uh, administered and uh, means of the uh, greater population would still be um, afloat to where um, the uh, civilization or the um, populations, the existing populations themselves could still uh, function as a unit. So uh, it is worth mentioning that, um, yes, given in December of 1675, the Susquehannocks established multiple winter encampments. One was above the falls of the James River. Two were along the Roanoke River near um, Okanichee Territory. By the time early January, 7, early January 1676 arrives, the Susquehannock uh, warriors returned up north into northern Virginia, but did so by staying to the west of staying to the west of colonial frontier territory. Of course, when I think of northern Virginia in modern day times, we think of, you know, Washington, D.C. We think of Manassas, Fairfax County. But of course, um, it would be fair to say that in January of 1676, there is no such thing as Washington, D.C., there is no such thing as uh, cities like Manassas, um, McLean, uh, Woodbridge. Uh, there, there might have been a place called Occoquan, which is not far from Woodbridge on US-1, modern-day US-1. But the reason why the Susquehannocks are staying to the west of the colonial frontier territory is so that they do not uh, fall into a trap. In other words... They know that they are probably being um, watched and perhaps being followed, but the further west they lie from the colonial, from the heart of colonial frontier territory, the greater the likelihood that they will be uh, spared of anything um, that would be of a worst-case scenario. So, perhaps by being west of the colonial frontier territory, they could be um, lying right on the outskirts of what we now know as present-day. Washington, D.C., and uh, as well as Manassas, they could be, for all we know, they could be um, uh, 50 miles west of D.C., like, say, in modern-day Winchester, Virginia. It's just a guess, but it is uh, possible. The Susquehannock men ended up splitting into small groups, which um, allowed multiple attacks in various places to be coordinated, most primarily... Um, or rather, more than likely uh, being that of uh, farms, which had been worked by English peoples, uh, a.k.a. indentured servants. Um, you know, when I say English peoples, I could be referring to English men, women, children, and uh, indentured servants whom are working for a certain period of time before they can officially um, 
gain their freedom to where they can uh, work their own land. Well, the Susquehannocks um, did, in fact, um, they didn't come uh, for games. What I mean is they didn't come for leisure entertainment. They actually, the mission for going up to Northern Virginia was not to conduct business, but to launch some attacks. So the Susquehannocks attacked the colonists working in their fields using axes, bows, and arrows. English servants were mowed down without any forewarnings. The Susquehannocks killed between 36 to 60 English people. You know, it's one thing to be working on your farm or working within your farm. You know, it might seem like a nice day outside. Couldn't ask for better weather. You think, oh, nothing could happen to me. I'm in a very secure place. Well, the Indians knew how to surprise um, their enemies, and in this case being the English. The Susquehannocks, their uh, relationship, I think it's fair to say, is a fractious one with the English peoples, and they're not joking around. They know uh, what has happened to them in terms of past injustices involving uh, some of the uh, English peoples. And when an injustice um, comes upon them, they're not going to take it lightly. How big was Nathaniel Bacon's plantation? How big do you think his uh, plantation was? And we're going to be talking a lot about him in this podcast segment. And as I said before from the previous one, uh, be expected to learn as much as there is about Bacon uh, going forward which will help understand why this rebellion of his was uh, very, very uh, powerful in its time. So my question to you all is, how big was Nathaniel Bacon's plantation? Was it 5,000 acres? Was it 3,000? Or choice C, 1,000? The answer is 1,000 acres. That's a lot. If anybody owned 1,000 or more acres, would it be fair to say that they are in the top tier of Virginia society during this time. Absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine owning a thousand acres or even more, but to own that kind of acreage, that definitely gave you a place in the government. It gave you a place in terms of having a um, sense of um, greater establishment in the community. So the, the name of Bacon's plantation was uh, called Curls. C-U-R-L-E-S. It's, it was located along a peninsula. Does anybody want to know what a peninsula is? I believe most of you know what, what peninsula refers to, but for those of you who don't, a peninsula is a piece of land nearly surrounded by water. Okay, it's not, perhaps it's not completely 100% surrounded by water, but it's close enough to being almost surrounded by water it's also a piece of land that extends out into a body of water. So for Nathaniel Bacon's plantation, being uh, Curls, it was located near the James River's north side. So yes, it is fair to say that his plantation was located along a peninsula, given that it was almost 100% surrounded by water. Now, prior to 1674, the year of Bacon's arrival to Virginia, 
Believe it or not, folks, Curls had been a working plantation since 1630, just shy of a quarter of a century at that time from when the first uh, Englishmen arrived to Virginia in 1607. To think in 1630, Virginia's legislative body, being the oldest in, um, in, the, in the United States, being that of the, it was then the House of Burgesses, but we refer to it as the General Assembly, but then again, the General Assembly, that name itself has been around for a long time. But to think that uh, Bacon's plantation, prior, well prior to his arrival, came about 11 years after um, the General Assembly was created, eight years after the infamous uprising of 1622. What kind of crops do you all think Nathaniel Bacon's uh, plantation would have um, consisted of? Well, for one, it consisted mostly of corn, but there's also another crop that is that reigns supreme in Virginia. Tobacco, a.k.a. the, the lucrative cash crop or the, uh, the king crop. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's number one. Nathaniel Bacon's um, plantation also consisted of outbuildings like a blacksmith shop, a tobacco barn, because, you know, the tobacco leaves need to dry and they need to be um, in, a, in a facility, uh, not only where they can dry, but once it's time for them to be taken down to be placed into uh, barrels where they would be uh, placed on ships uh, sent 3,000 miles across the ocean to England. Then uh, it turns out Nathaniel Bacon also at his estate had what was called a spring house that was used for cooling, or rather I should say chilling dairy products. So it's one thing to have a thousand acres, but we have to keep in mind that in a, there's more to just the estate besides the grand building or the entranceway itself. There has to be other uh, buildings because you, you're, you're not going to fit everything into one building. You have to have a separate building to prepare your food. Because remember, folks, back then, um, I learned this uh, sometime back in Colonial Williamsburg, that the reason why there were buildings separate from the main building when it came to cooking food was because if your main house caught on fire and the kitchen was inside, the whole the whole structure would have burnt to the ground. So if an outbuilding caught on fire, at least you would have known that other outbuildings nearby would survive, including the main part of your house, which would not have been attached to those buildings. So the outbuildings are essential because they uh, provide for all other um, essentials in running a uh, plantation. Bacon himself did have dozens of servants and slaves. Five of his servants were Africans, uh, whereas another five slaves were Indians. Besides uh, his 1,000-acre estate at Curls, uh, Bacon also had a property close to the falls of the James River. Well, do you think Nathaniel Bacon himself experienced some misfortunes via the work of Susquehanna of Susquehannock warriors. Do you believe that Nathaniel Bacon experienced any misfortune? 
The answer is, uh, yes, he did. Well, which property um, fell prey to the Susquehannock warriors? Was it Curls or was it this uh, property that lied closer to the falls of the James River? Choice B, the, the property that was near the, the falls of the James. So it turns out that while these uh, Susquehannock warriors were making their way home from conducting Rappahannock, from conducting raids along the Rappahannock River, they did, um, they pretty much went about um, stumbling upon um, property. Of course, little did they know, for one, these men probably don't know who Nathaniel Bacon is, but two, it obviously was property, and they obviously knew that it was property that belonged to uh, either an English family or an Englishman himself, so they uh, destroyed it. And if that was bad enough, Nathaniel Bacon's overseer was killed by the Susquehannock warriors. Nathaniel Bacon himself wasn't alone. Other residents residing along the falls endured the same results. Is it fair to say that this would get Nathaniel Bacon's attention? Absolutely. We'll learn more about that here shortly. Let's find out how Governor Berkeley responds to all of this mess, because it is a big mess to say the least. Did Governor Berkeley and his advisors, being those men on the Council of State, did they issue an emergency meeting in the midst of the Susquehannock attacks around the falls of the James River? Yes, they did. They dispatched uh, Sir Henry uh, Cicelli, or Chickley, uh, spelled C-H-I-C-H-E-L-E-Y, whom was able to gather uh, 300 men in tracking down the Susquehannocks. That's a pretty impressive number in terms of tracking down um, those whom have um, done things that are uh, not becoming. However, there is a catch to this. And you all will probably agree with me on this. Right as Chickalee's men started embarking on their mission, they hadn't even left yet. Governor Berkeley, out of nowhere, cancels this plan altogether. He, he aborts it. But he doesn't provide any reasons. He just wants to abort this plan altogether. And he goes about delaying all discussions regarding the crisis with the Susquehannocks until March of 1676, when the House of Burgesses were scheduled to uh, convene. We have to keep in mind this, too, folks, that, um, you know, in the 17th century, especially in Virginia, while, yes, the um, General Assembly did function, they didn't meet, say, 60 or 70 days out of the year. They met only when the governor um, called upon them to come to Jamestown to debate um, issues that were of not only of importance, but issues that required being debated upon if, in fact, something occurred that um, perhaps pertained to a matter of security, that pertained to a matter of um, interests, that would actually benefit the greater commonwealth as a whole. I do know that uh, in Virginia, when the General Assembly convenes during even years, like this year, for example, it would have been about 60 days. 
but then again, um, a governor can always call the legislative body back into session for whatever reason uh, merits the purpose, but it doesn't always have to be within a 60-day uh, time frame during a, an even year. Now, in odd years, um, being like, say, next year, for example, uh, the General Assembly would meet probably about like 45 days at most. So even during the early years of the General Assembly's existence, the governors were the ones that would uh, call out um, Burgess members to come to Jamestown and convene, but only at his discretion. So Governor Berkeley did not provide a plan for protecting settlers along the frontier. In other words, he didn't have anything set up. I mean, it's one thing to abort this mission, but he did not provide a plan for people, most notably settlers along the frontier, as to how they could go about protecting themselves. Do you think this would anger someone like Nathaniel Bacon, who lives along the frontier? Yes. Do you think Bacon himself would have a reason to be angry? Yes. It turns out that 60 out of 71 plantation farmers abandoned their homes along the Rappahannock River. Could they have abandoned their homes out of fear? Yes. But if they abandoned their homes, where are they going? I mean, it's not like they can just go to a uh, hotel nearby and say, hey, we need to uh, check in and stay here for a couple of weeks until it's safe to uh, return back home. Um, that's really not the way... Um, <laughs> It, the matter; these matters would have been able to have been um, resolved. So now we have to wonder what is really going on in Governor Berkeley's mind. Is there something else that he is fearing that, if not careful, could come about and perhaps destroy Jamestown altogether? Well, let's find out. Did Governor Berkeley fear something worse could happen in Virginia besides having a fallout take place amongst the Susquehannocks? Okay, so we already know that Governor Berkeley has an alliance with the Susquehannocks. Is he afraid that if, um, that if uh, raids and warfare with the, against the Susquehannocks occurred, that other um, alliances, most notably in the form of uh, trade relations with other Indians, uh, most notably those who don't live far from the Okanichis along the Virginia-North Carolina line? Is it, is it, um, is it worrying uh, Governor Berkeley to where, okay, if I lose the relationship with the Susquehannocks, what other dominoes will fall next in terms of uh, existing Indian relations with um, other Indians in the greater Commonwealth? All of those factors can't be, um, they can't be um, jeopardized, but they can't be um, ignored, or I should say isolated. So yes, Governor Berkeley did have a lot to fear, but he did in fact have, there was something that he feared worse that could happen in Virginia besides the fallout with the Susquehannocks. Does anybody know what that, what this uh, fear truly was? If you don't know, that's fine. I'll answer the question for you. His fears grew bigger after learning the news. And of course, remember, when we 
when we're learning about the news in 1676, we don't have a television, folks. We don't have a cell phone that can provide us with breaking news. We don't have radios. So how are we going to get the news in 1676, folks? Through letters. Okay? Now, we don't have two- or three-day priority mail, but it is fair to say that there is there has to be some kind of a mail courier network in colonial America. Think about it. Um, we have to we have to find out in some way or form or another of what is going on to the north of us. And of course, when I think of the north of north of Virginia in 1676, I'm thinking of Maryland. Yes, I could think of Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, but. If anybody wants to know of anything that's imminent, just north of them in Virginia, we're probably going to think of uh, whatever is going on in Maryland. But it turns out that um, some events had taken place well north of Maryland and Pennsylvania. And when I say well north of Pennsylvania and Maryland, where do you think I'm referring to, folks? I'm referring to New England. So up in New England, and when we think of New England, what states do we think of? Well, I think of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire. Uh, of course, we have to remember Maine is not a, a colony at this time. Maine is considered to be part of Massachusetts. Uh, Vermont is not even a colony at this time, folks. It's wedged in between New York and New Hampshire. And for many, for many years, until the very end of the 18th century, New York and New Hampshire will fight over whom has control over Vermont. But... Multiple Indian nations up north in New England under Metacombe, a.k.a. King, King Philip, banded together by taking up arms against English peoples from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, which produced attacks that led to the destruction of many English towns, including English families being forced to relocate as far as a hundred miles out past their original places, places of establishment, which had been permanent fixtures for just over 50 years. So think about it, folks. Many of these English families who've been forced to relocate well past a hundred miles of their original places of establishment. Think about it. Um, these families had been uh, living in what we now know as uh, Plymouth, a.k.a. Plymouth Rock, where the pilgrims um, came to in November of 1620. It's, it's probably fair to say that um, many um, descendants of those whom had uh, gone before them in the early years of the Massachusetts colony uh, continued to reside in Plymouth as well as in the outlying areas of Plymouth. Now, all of a sudden, their homes are no longer around, all because of this, all because of the uprising and um, hostile activities taking place amongst the many Indian nations under Metacombe, aka King Philip. So, how do you, if you're Governor Berkeley, how do you take all this news of what's going on up north? Of course, one would think in today's time, well, if you're living in Virginia, why should it concern you about what's happening in Massachusetts, given that that's, you know, 500, 700 miles away? How could you uh, act as though your uh, government could be in jeopardy? 
Well, Governor Berkeley became all the more convinced that actions up north pertaining to King Philip's War were making their way down south into Virginia. He believed that the Indians in New England, whom, whom had participated in these um, attacks against English peoples from Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, had, sent, had already sent some of their own peoples down south to entice Virginia Indians like the Susquehannocks into participating in actions deemed hostile or perhaps conspiratorial, a.k.a. conspiracy. Many of us have heard the word conspiracy many of times throughout history. The word itself derives from the Latin uh, term being conspirari. So what does conspiracy itself mean? It's an act or a plot that's secret. Okay? It's one that it is um, where the actions, or not so much the actions, but the planning behind the mission is done behind closed doors. It involves two or more persons whom go about executing their uh, primary objectives with the end result of doing something harmful, dangerous, that not only will impact one group of people, but could perhaps impact all of society. Going into 1676, Governor Berkeley was in the midst of serving his second stint as Virginia's governor. Now, I know that I told uh, you all from a previous uh, podcast that he had been governor of Virginia since 1641. So his first stint lasted from 1641 to 1652. The second stint, however, dates back to 1660. That's 14 years prior to Nathaniel Bacon's arrival into Virginia. How old do you all think uh, Governor William Berkeley is? Well, let me ask you this. Was he born before or after the English first arrived into Jamestown in 1607? I did the research, and it turns out Nathaniel that... Um, William Berkeley, believe it or not, folks, was born in 1705, two years before the English officially arrived into uh, what we now know as present-day Jamestown, Virginia. So, if he was born in 1605, that means that uh, King James was king of England. He had um, taken the place of his cousin, whom died in 1603, being uh, Queen Elizabeth I. So, if, if um, Governor Berkeley was born in 1605, and here we are in 1676, he's in his early 70s. To me, that is old age. Most people back then did not probably live. If you made it to 50, that was considered old age. You had lived a long life, but for anyone to have lived past 50, going into their early 70s, was incredibly remarkable for that day and time. Now, the reason why uh, Governor, or rather I should say, the reason why William Berkeley is serving another stint as governor is because um, he was forced to come out of retirement in 1660 due to the death of Governor Samuel Matthews. Now, how exactly are Nathaniel Bacon and William Berkeley related? 
they are related. I do remember mentioning from the previous podcast that when Nathaniel Bacon arrives into Virginia, he does he is connected to two people. Nathaniel Bacon is the nephew of Francis Berkeley, Governor Berkeley's wife. So there you have it. The books probably told us one thing that oh, Nathaniel Bacon and William Berkeley from years past were were two people not related to one another. One was in charge of the state trying to uh, preserve order. The other was just a simple rebel rouser uh, constantly looking for trouble left and right. Well, we do have to keep in mind that even um, families are not immune from conflict from within. Um, I think it's fair to say that since the beginning of time, there have been families with the, who have a family member or two whom are always creating mischief and trouble for everyone else. Is it fair to say that even in 1676, that Francis Berkeley's nephew, being that of Nathaniel Bacon, is causing trouble amongst the family from within? Uh, the answer is yes. March 7th of 1676, the General Assembly convened Governor Berkeley proposed having multiple forts built at the entrances to rivers like the York, the James, uh, the Rappahannock, and probably the Potomac as well. By uh, building multiple forts, uh, Governor Berkeley uh, also uh, proposed having uh, horsemen patrolling the forts and soldiers guarding the farms. The commanders were given the power to defend frontier settlements against enemy invasion, in this case being uh, Indians whom would have uh, presented themselves as a threat. Now, yes, it's one thing to give your uh, commanders power to, um, to defend their uh, settlements along the frontier. However, there is a catch to this. I believe this was a mistake on Governor Berkeley's part, However, at the same time, I also understand why he probably, um, why he did what he did. Because, for one, we have to remember all the alliances he has with um, various Indian tribes. So, the one thing he's um, cutting out here is um, he is not allowing the commanders to attack Indians along the frontier settlements. He's not allowing them to attack the Indians but if if an attack were to take place, what do the commanders need? They need formal consent from above. In other words, could this be an example of checks and balances? Yes, it's one thing to perform an action, but if you don't get the consent from those above, then there are repercussions, big and small. Is it fair to say that Governor Berkeley is trying his best to avert War, yes, because war, in his eyes, should be a last resort when all else has failed. Governor Berkeley's plan required Indian allies be paid with trading goods for all general services at the various forts, including securing bounties for killing and capturing all Indians labeled as enemies. The governor's plan focused on issues surrounding the Susquehannocks and trying to prevent other Indians from coming along. So the governor doesn't want um, commanders attacking 
Indians along frontier settlements, and when he refers to Indians, it's the Susquehannocks. He knows that the Susquehannocks are in a very delicate situation. He knows that if he loses the Susquehannocks, then, then he knows he's simply up a creek. Although the House of Burgess... Although the House of Burgesses did approve uh, Berkeley's proposal plans, that is, uh, members of the House of Burgesses, obviously it was a unanimous approval. And what I mean by unanimous, folks, I mean that nobody objected. Nobody disapproved. Nobody uh, voted in opposition. While everybody did approve uh, from within the House of Burgesses uh, bake, uh, Berkeley's proposal plans, however, outside... Um, the state house being outside the inner walls of the state house, there began grumbling. In other words, there began um, some form of dissension, or there began uh, talks of um, the exact opposite. You know, saying one thing inside the walls in terms of agreeing to um, to a plan, but now as you have left those walls, you're doing the opposite. Some of the Burgesses began viewing forts or military posts as a waste of taxpayer money in times of uncertainty. Okay, it's one thing to raise money to build a, a fort or build mil military posts, but the bigger question is, is what are we going to do with these posts a couple of years from now when we're not, let's say, when um, times get back to being better? In other words, what are we going to do with these posts in times of peace? Do we still keep them or do we demolish them? Um, who's going to be footing the bill? In other, in other words, how much money do we need to keep spending on these forts and posts um, in terms of uh, pr maintaining the upkeep on them? You know, it's one thing to have a, a military post, but if you don't... Uh, maintain the necessary upkeep with it, then you let it go into disarray to where it will eventually deteriorate, crumble. Think of it as like a, a works progress administration project of sorts. So, yes, we have some Burgess members whom are uh, very hesitant about wasting taxpayer dollars in times of uncertainty. Governor Berkeley is confronted over whether to allow frontier peoples the right behind taking up arms against Indians, that is, taking it upon themselves to, to attack Indians, and not just so much attack Indians, but obtain sums of money, being that of a commission, for attacking any or all Indians whom encroached upon their lands. In other words, the frontiers people, or the frontier plantation um, peoples, want to be paid for their means of uh, service, and it means getting money right out of the heart of the governor's um, chest, what do you call it, um, what we think of as like his treasury chest. Did Governor Berkeley approve requests behind the frontier peoples wishing to take matters into their own hands regarding desires and attacking Indians? No. Well, this now leads some to believe that the governor himself was part of the conspiracy against all frontier planters. Now we have those within the House of Burgesses whom perhaps believe that the governor himself and his, um, and his uh, select um, 
group of men being the Council of State could be part of a greater conspiracy and that they are, that they simply just don't like the frontier planters all because of that guy named Nathaniel Bacon. Well, Nathaniel Bacon is not happy. But then again, I don't think he's been happy for a while since the time he arrived into Virginia. More so because of who because of William Governor William Berkeley's uh policies. Nathaniel Bacon went as far as telling his neighbors that the conspiracy itself included Indians whom Governor Berkeley had been appeasing, that when you appease someone, you were doing whatever is necessary to please them so that they don't um, create further troubles. So Nathaniel Bacon is telling his neighbors along the uh, frontier, um, along the frontier that uh, Governor Berkeley has been appeasing um, Indians, most notably the Susquehannocks, for an extended period of time. Bacon himself has spread rumors about Berkeley saying that he monopolized a trade deal with the Indians to granting licenses allowing others to trade. Does the governor have the power to issue licenses to Indian traders? No. That decision is left to the county courts. They are the ones that issue the licenses to Indian traders. Nathaniel Bacon accused Governor Berkeley of providing Indians with firearms. You know, it's one thing to make an accusation about someone, but you better have some uh, good concrete proof of it. Charles City County, which is located not far from where I live, and nor is it located not far from the falls of the James River, of course, when I think of Charles City County, I think of historic uh, Virginia State Route 5, where uh, plant, um, historic plantations like Shirley and Berkeley Plantation um, are located. Um, it was in Charles City County where another rumor surfaced, being one that led many to officially go against Governor Berkeley. Governor um, Nathaniel Bacon said that another rumor... Um, created by Bacon was one of um, a large presence of Indians coming near the falls of the James River, which resulted in mass gatherings of dissenting planters at Jordan's Point, an area on the southern bank of the James below the entrance to the Appomattox River. I'm beginning to think now that we might be seeing a grand finale of uh, people coming together whom want to do something very, very radical. Is it fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon knew of volunteer militiamen assembling at Jordan's Point come the start and end to April of 1676? That's a definitive yes. His antics, or rather I should say Bacon's antics or actions alone, per the rumors he made about Governor Berkeley and the um, administration, they were enough to rouse frontier planters around him whom felt betrayed by the governor, given that the governor himself chose not to meet the demands of those considered untrustworthy from within. Believe it or not, uh, those whom Governor Berkeley considered as being untrustworthy were the frontier planters. It, it seems like if there was one group of uh, planters in Virginia whom, perhaps in Governor Berkeley's eyes, are really not true gentlemen, it is the frontier planters. 
it's probably fair to say that the frontier planters are the ones who cause so much trouble to where Governor Berkeley knows that no matter what I do, I will never be able to please them. Of course, politics, it's cutthroat. It's been dirty since the beginning of time, but it is probably fair to say that even since the earliest of uh, civilizations dating back to the times of the Roman Republic, Roman Empire, that um, that people weren't, that there was a sector of society whom could not be, um, whom could never be satisfied with anything. We have men like Captain James Cruz, William Byrd, and Henry Isham. Why are these three men important? Because they're all close friends of Nathaniel Bacon's, whom had direct business ties to Bacon himself. William Byrd, for example, was Nathaniel Bacon's fur trading partner. All three men were responsible for helping orchestrate the mission at Jordan's Point. Volunteer soldiers went as far as chanting Nathaniel Bacon's name out loud with desires of him leading the raid attack against the Indians. It's almost as if these uh, volunteer soldiers now see Nathaniel Bacon as their savior, as their uh, true leader, maybe in a sense like a messiah, someone whom will um, relieve them of all of all injustices um, that have been dealt upon them. Bacon accepted the position of ringleader, head commander, for what would lie ahead in the foreseeable future. He expressed concerns about Indian brutality, but he also went as far as expressing his distaste of wasteful spending behind fort construction, including Governor Berkeley's friendship with Indian tribes along with the governor playing favorites within the inner circle. Yes, it is very fair to say that Nathaniel Bacon and his followers, all being frontier planters, have simply been forgotten and have simply been um, deprived of their fundamental rights. It's, it's probably fair to say that maybe in the eyes of Governor Burke, of uh, Nathaniel Bacon and his followers, that They've just been the forgotten ones. Nathaniel Bacon went as far as crossing the James River more than once into New Kent County, where he had constant success in recruiting additional volunteer fighters, a.k.a. dissidents. And in the midst of a few days, Bacon had up to 300 armed men whom were ready to strike at the heart of Governor Berkeley's administration, whose policies favored Indians over those living along the fringes of society to those from, from within living in or nearby the capital, a.k.a. Jamestown. Is it fair to say that even in 1676 that um, America isn't 100% safe? We have a crisis to the north in Massachusetts. We have a crisis in Virginia which is the largest of the colonies. It is fair to say that in 1676, we might as well be dealing with issues that we would say now in today's time are matters of national security, not just from an international front, but more so uh, domestic. Could it be fair to say that whatever is looming in store, it's not a matter of if it would happen, it's a matter of when. Is it fair to say that even in 1676, that 
a rebel rouser and Nathaniel Bacon, whom has lots of land. Yes, he's along the frontier. Is it fair to say that he could be um, doing something that we think of in today's time as modern-day domestic terrorism? Sounds radical, folks, but it is true. Uh, After having read this book and knowing more about what really happened, yes, what what transpired was uh, an example of modern-day domestic terrorism by 1676 standards. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about Nathaniel Bacon, uh, which probably should be a given, but we're going to learn more about where things go between Bacon and Berkeley. However, it's fair to say that we've already learned some stuff, but yet we haven't learned everything just yet. So perhaps that's not a bad thing. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And thank you for being such ardent listeners. Uh, Take care and uh, continue to spread the word uh, with Anchor Podcast and uh, listening to the uh, podcast themselves. Later for now.